Well, you can open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. You know, I grew up in church, had the privilege of doing so, and um, when, when, uh, when you would grow up in church, you kind of had the experience of being in kids' church, and we have, a great, we have a great kids' church here at Trinity. Pastor Vicki does an amazing job. She has a fantastic team of leaders, and, and they have a great time. While we're here, they're there, and uh, they're listening to lessons, and they're getting in small groups, and they're singing songs just like we do. And one of the things I've noticed is that the songs that the children sing in church today are a lot different than the songs I sang growing up in church when I was a kid. They actually sing songs that are a lot like the songs that we sang this morning. But when I was growing up, the songs we sang in uh, children's church, you could never sing them in adult church. <laughs> Things like Father Abraham. And if you didn't grow up in church, I'm sorry, you won't know these songs. Um, we can maybe demonstrate for them for you later. Uh, it's just a series of questionable theology and embarrassing motions. Um, but Father Abraham and uh, Arky Arky, anyone remember that song? The Lord told Noah to build him an Arky Arky. Build it out of gopher, barky, barky. Yep, a few of you got it. Uh, I remember some of the songs were supposed to help us learn how to spell. I am a C, I am a C-H, I am a C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Remember that song? And uh, one song that if you grew up in church back when I did, you can't help but remember is the song about the man Zacchaeus. And we used to sing that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And this morning, we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus. We're going to find that he's a little more than just a wee little man. And there's a lot for us to learn here. So I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 19. It says this, that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. He was short. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He, speaking of Jesus, has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In this story... There's three things that we find in Jesus and we can only find in Jesus. And we're going to talk about those this morning. And the first thing is this. In Jesus, we find the look we all want. The look. Did you notice that Jesus stopped and he looked at Zacchaeus? We find the look we all want. Now, as the story begins, Jesus is passing through Jericho. And in Jericho, there's a man named Zacchaeus. And what do we learn about Zacchaeus? He's rich. He's wealthy. And Zacchaeus was rich for three reasons. First off, he was rich because of where he lived. He lived in Jericho, and Jericho was wealthy. There was money in Jericho. Jericho was located in a fertile part of Judea. It boasted a tropical climate. It had excellent access to water for agriculture. 
Uh, Herod the Great had actually been given Jericho by Caesar Augustus. And so Herod the Great had sort of turned uh, Jericho into his own little uh, place where he would build different things. This is, like, this is like before Minecraft, right? Herod is building up his own little town, his own little village, and he puts in their aqueducts and a fortress, and, and he put in a winter palace, and Jericho was a city where wealthy priestly families would live. They would live in Jericho, and they would travel to Jerusalem to do ministry in the temple. Jericho was a border city. It was on the trade route, and it actually had its own customs station. So if you were passing through Jericho, you had to go through customs, and there were lots of people passing through Jericho because Jericho was about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and it was sort of the last city where you could stop in and rest in, get supplies in, and be safe in before you continued your journey to Jerusalem. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is the road that that story happened on from Jericho to Jerusalem. And so this man was wealthy because of where he lived, but he also was rich because of what he did. He was the chief tax collector. It's the only place in scripture where we see that phrase. He wasn't just one of the tax collectors. He was the chief tax collector, which meant he ranked above the normal tax collectors. He was in management. And he didn't just uh, run, he didn't just collect taxes. He actually would have also run the customs station. So when people came through and they charged them customs, he was in charge of that also. So where he lived, what he did. But the third reason why he was rich because, was because of how he did what he did. He wasn't a good man. He, he, he stole, he cheated. Uh, Tax collectors back then would have been classed with murderers and robbers. They would have been considered traitors because they were working for the Romans against their Jewish brothers and sisters. So, you know, they didn't like tax collectors to begin with, but, but he was worse than your average tax collector because he was a chief tax collector. And we, we learn later in the story that he was cheating people. We also know that Zacchaeus was short in stature, which means he was a small guy. Um, most likely because of sort of the Jewish culture, the Jewish customs, the Jewish people, the commentators say Zacchaeus was probably shorter than five feet. So four foot something Zacchaeus, this small little guy. And he wasn't just small and short physically, but he was small in character and he was small in the eyes of others. And on this day, Zacchaeus goes looking for Jesus. Now why? It doesn't really say, does it? The story doesn't really say why Zacchaeus goes looking for Jesus. Maybe he's just curious. Maybe he's heard, because at this point, Jesus had a nickname, and Jesus' nickname was this, friend of sinners, a friend of even tax collectors. And maybe Zacchaeus heard, there's a rabbi coming through town who's doing miracles and signs and wonders, and people are also saying that he's friends with tax collectors. I gotta see who this guy is. So maybe he's curious, maybe he's heard stories, or maybe... Zacchaeus is just longing for something more than everything he has. He's dissatisfied with what he has in his life. It's, it's very likely that Zacchaeus found his wealth and his lifestyle unsatisfying. It was a sense of unease, made every pleasure that he could get unfulfilling because nothing lasted. And in order to get the thing of wealth and riches for Zacchaeus, he had to give so many things up to get it. He had to lay down his character, his reputation, his friends, his acceptance amongst his own people. But he laid it all down because he thought, if I can, I can leave those things behind me because what I'll get is money, finances, wealth, and security, and then it will be worth it. But he's still longing for something more. And let me just pause and say this. I think this is what all of us do. We go through life looking for something, looking for something, whether it's a career 
a relationship, experiences, achievements, hoping that it'll be enough, but ultimately it leaves us longing for more, unsatisfied. And the key to this story and the key to your story is not that Zacchaeus went looking for Jesus, but that Jesus came looking for him. That's the key to this whole story. Not that Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus, but that Jesus came looking for him. See, everything else in life that you want, whether it's the things we listed, career, achievements, respect, power, control, you have to go looking for those things. You have to go searching for those things. You have to chase those things down. You have to give yourself away to get those things. But Jesus Christ, like in this story, same thing in your story, he comes looking for you. Yes, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. It says he wanted to see Jesus. In fact, he made such an effort to see Jesus that he climbed a tree but it doesn't say anything about the fact that he wanted to really meet him. He just wanted to see him. He didn't say that he wanted to listen to him or learn from him. It doesn't say that he wanted to be like Jesus or follow Jesus or have his life changed by him. In fact, when you read the story, there's no reason to believe that if Jesus hadn't stopped and looked at him, that he, Zacchaeus wouldn't have just left that day unchanged. That Zacchaeus would have just let Jesus walk by, not realizing in Jesus is everything that my heart's been looking for in all of my wealth, and all of my riches. But Jesus stops, and he looks. And it's the look we all want. It's the look we all want. In all of our searching, and sometimes in spite of our searching, Jesus is searching for us. He's looking for us. Just a couple chapters before this, Luke 19 and Luke 15, Jesus tells three stories about three things that are lost. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, and there's a lost son. And every one of those stories it's the person who's lost that thing that goes looking, that goes searching, that's finding, that's finding, finds a sheep, finds a coin. And even though the boy in the last story does come home, it's the father who runs to him and goes to him. Jesus sees us and he sees us as we are. And the truth is, is that this is the look we all want. The look we all want is this, two things, to be fully known and still to be fully loved. Somewhere along the way, we've convinced ourselves it's not possible. If somebody really knew me, they wouldn't fully love me. You think about romantic comedies, the films, like that's the plot really of every rom-com. It's these two people meet each other, they think they love each other, but then halfway through the movie, they learn something about each other, or one of them learns something about the other one, and they think that's the end of the relationship, but then they realize like, no, I can't live without you, I gotta be with you, and there's like a musical montage where they're lonely, and they're sad, and they're crying, and then there's some miraculous romantic moment happens, and they're back together, and the movie ends, and we're like, oh, so good. Unless you hate rom-coms, then you're like, ugh. And what we love about that, why that narrative always gets us every single time is because at the deepest place of our hearts, that's what we all know we need, to be fully known and to be fully loved. It's hard to be fully known nowadays. We put versions of ourselves out there, don't we? That's why sociologists say that despite the unprecedented amount of connectedness that we have because of social media and the internet, there's also unprecedented levels of loneliness, especially among young people. Why? Because even though they're connected and they have thousands of friends on Facebook and lots of followers on Instagram and Snapchat and other things like that, they're really just putting out a version of themselves. It's not really them. It's a filtered version of who they are. So when they're being honest, they realize no one knows the real me or no one knows, no one knows, really knows me. And even though all these people like the stuff that I do, I realize this is just sort of a front. 
of who I really am. And so there's a tremendous loneliness because what we want is to be fully known and fully loved. And Zacchaeus, or salvation comes to Zacchaeus because Jesus sought him out and came looking for us. Augustine said this about God. He, he said, God, you follow close behind the fugitive. You follow close behind those who are running from you. And, and you call us to yourself in ways that we cannot understand. How many of you, when you look back on your journey of faith, for those of you that have placed your trust and hope in Jesus, you can look back at times and realize he was always following close behind me. And he was always calling to me in ways that at the time I couldn't understand. And if you're here this morning, you say, I don't understand that. I'm telling you, I believe with all my heart, he's calling to you. He's, he's calling to you this morning and he's calling to you in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways that he calls to us is he doesn't allow us to be fully satisfied in anything outside of his look, him seeing us and knowing us. God makes us hungry for him. He causes us to search. He compels us to come. Listen, I don't, I don't know what your story is, but it's not a story of you going looking for Jesus. Ultimately, it's a story of Jesus looking for you. He came after you. And when you experience the look, when Jesus looks at you and sees you and you realize that you're fully known and you're fully loved, it fills your heart with two things. It fills your heart with wonder that he would look at you. Why would he stop and look up a tree at Zacchaeus, this chief tax collector? Why did he deserve even a second of this holy rabbi's attention? Because Jesus looks at him, fully knows him, and fully loves him. And when we get that, our hearts are filled with wonder. I can't believe it's me. I can't believe he loves me. I can't believe he chose me. And worship. And so what this means, by the way, is if someone says to you, are you a Christian? The one answer that is not that reveals a heart that doesn't understand this truth is this. Of course. Of course I'm a Christian. I've been in church my whole life. And I read my Bible and I pray and I tithe and I do all these things. Of course I'm a Christian. A Christian, someone who's really experienced the look of Jesus, when someone says, are you a Christian? There's always this sense of wonder and awe, like, I can't believe I am. I mean, not I can't believe, but I'm just filled with so much gratitude, God, that you would love me, that you would look at me, that you would choose me. It's the look we all want. The second thing we see in this story that we find in Jesus is not just the look we all want, but it's the invite that we all have. The invite that we all have. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. Now there's two things that make this invitation very unusual, very unusual. The first thing is this, it's who spoke the invite. Who spoke the invite? Yesterday we were driving around somewhere with my daughters and uh, Lilia, my 10-year-old, in the back seat. She goes, Daddy, I'd like to have dinner tonight at someone else's house. <laughs> and I was like, that sounds great. We've not been invited. <laughs> like, we can't, what, are we, what am I supposed to do about that? All right, I'm not a magician. So, but it was so funny. She's just like, I want to have dinner at someone else's house. And I explained to her, well, we, you know, we don't invite ourselves over. That's not how that works. Kids don't, kids don't get that, but, but we get it, right? That's a social etiquette. And it was the same social etiquette back then, 2,000 years ago. No one would have ever invited themselves to someone else's house. Even though it was a very, it was a culture, it was a society that really valued hospitality, the invitations always went in one direction and never the other. So when Jesus invited himself over, really with a, with not just an invitation, but like, I must go to your house today, it was very unusual. But the other thing that made this invitation unusual was not just who spoke the invitation, but it was who the invitation was spoken to. When he stopped and he noticed him and he called him by name, he called him by name. Now, I, I, I've thought about this this week. Why did Jesus know his name? And 
is going to be disappointing. I don't know. That, that's the answer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I know you guys are on the edge of your seats like, this is going to be good. <laughs> I don't know. I have guesses. Maybe he was infamous. Maybe as people, maybe as they were walking through Jericho, they said, there's this guy, Zacchaeus, he's terrible. He's a chap. Maybe his, maybe the other Jewish believers had, had complained about him or talked about him. Maybe somebody, as they were walking and Jesus looked up, they said to him, hey, that's Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. We don't know. Maybe God gave him a word of knowledge and he knew Zacchaeus' name. We don't know why, but he calls him by name, saying, I know you. And he calls him and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming over to your house today. And I bet if you could have pressed pause when Jesus said, Zacchaeus, if you press pause then and you were able to interview the crowd, I bet the crowd was like, ooh, good. Oh, yeah. This is going to be awesome. Zacchaeus is going to get it. Jesus is going to rebuke him. He's going to, you know, turn him into like an animal or something. Like, this is going to be amazing. Nobody would have expected what happened next. Jesus is Zacchaeus. They never would have thought he's going to invite himself over to his house. And actually, there's something in the invitation. One of the commentaries I read said that Jesus wasn't just inviting himself over for a meal. He was actually saying, Zacchaeus, as long as I'm in Jericho doing ministry, I'm staying with you. You're, you're going to be home base for me. And I'm going to stay with you, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to minister to this community out of your home. And, and you know, the, a, a, a righteous, pious Jew would have, would have been very hesitant to enter the house of a tax collector or to eat his food because someone who was unreligious enough to collect taxes for Rome probably wasn't very careful about how they prepared their food and how they tithed on their stuff. And so they wouldn't have trusted what was offered. And for others, when they looked at Zacchaeus, they would have thought Zacchaeus is beyond salvation. One of the commentaries said this, if you had lived in Jericho, you would have written Zacchaeus off too. He had turned his back on God's word and his covenant people. He was a participant in Roman oppression. He was a traitor. He made his money off the backs of his own people. He loved money. His cartel was the cause of much injustice. He was the baddest, smallest, meanest man in town. And Jesus says, I'm inviting myself over to be with you today. And with that invite, I want us to notice something. With that invite, Jesus takes something from Zacchaeus and he gives something to him. He takes something from Zacchaeus and he gives something to him. And here's what he does. He takes the scorn of the crowd off of Zacchaeus and onto himself. Do you notice the crowd's reaction? They grumbled. They grumbled. The scorn that they had reserved for the tax collector Zacchaeus, they now put it on Jesus. So who does he, what is he doing eating with this sinner? But the other thing Jesus did was he took away that scorn, but he also gave Zacchaeus worth and value and said, you're worth my time. You're worth my present. You're worth my visit. Now, what does this remind us of? Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And he probably did this before, but this would be the last time. This is the last time Jesus would pass through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem where he would experience his Passion Week, which we're going to be remembering and celebrating in the upcoming weeks, where he went to the cross and he did the exact same thing for us that he does for Zacchaeus here. He took the scorn and the shame that we deserved on himself, and he gave us value and worth through his work on the cross for us. And today, Jesus is still inviting himself in, isn't he? He's still inviting himself in. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says this to the church in Laodicea, This is a church that had a lot of issues, a lot of problems. They were struggling to hold on to their first love. And he said this, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He's inviting himself in. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he will eat with me. 
See, sometimes in the Christian church, we use this phrase, have you invited Jesus into your heart? And I know what that means. It means have you placed your trust and hope in him? But that's not the way the invitation works. It's not about us inviting Jesus in. It's about us responding to Jesus' invitation. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. You and I don't stand at Jesus' door knocking, saying, Jesus, would you open up and let us in? Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and he knocks. And this morning he's knocking at your heart and he's inviting himself in. He's saying, I must dwell with you. I must be with you. Inviting himself into our homes, into our hearts and into our lives. And this invitation is the invitation that we all have. Last thing this morning that we see in this story is this. So we see the look we all want, the invite we all have. And lastly, it's the change we all need. It's the change we all need. Zacchaeus changes dramatically doesn't he? And there's two things that we're going to learn about this change, and then we're going to close. The first is this. The change is miraculous. It is. It's miraculous. In the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus has another interaction with a rich person. We know him as the rich young ruler. We don't know his name. And the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus because he loves his wealth more than he loves Jesus. And look what happens after he walks away. Look at this. It'll be on the screen for you. Luke 18, verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, speaking of the rich young ruler, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses this metaphor. He goes on to say, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? I mean, this is impossible. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And what I love about how Luke tells this story is, you know, we leave the rich young ruler and we think maybe wealthy people can't serve God. Maybe they can't follow God. And Luke brings us the next chapter to Zacchaeus and says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. It's a miraculous work in the heart of Zacchaeus that causes him to trust in Jesus. And so Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. That's interesting because Zacchaeus was a Jew. He already was a son of Abraham. He already was a son of Abraham. But when we read the apostle Paul's writings, we realize that Paul talks about two types of sons of Abraham, children of the flesh versus children of the promise. Those who are a son of Abraham because of their descent, because of their ethnicity, and those who are the true Israel, the true children of Abraham because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their faith in the covenant that God made with their father, Abraham. And how did God make the covenant with Abraham? Was Abraham impressive? Was Israel impressive? Were they larger than other nations? Did they bring more to the table? Absolutely not. He chose them because he's sovereign. It was his sovereign grace that put his hand on a man named Abram and through whom he brought a people, through whom he would bring his son. So what does this mean? When Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham, he's saying he was always in one sense a son of Abraham, but today he's experienced the grace of God and he's responded to the grace of God. And now salvation has come to his house. Salvation requires grace and grace alone. It's a miraculous change. It's change that is miraculous, but then also, lastly, this morning, it's change that is measurable. Those two words matter. If you've experienced the grace of God and it's changed your life, then it's two things. It's miraculous. It wasn't your work. It was God's work. It's miraculous, but it's measurable. Change happens. 
You can see it. And Zacchaeus does some amazing things here. He gives away 50% of everything he has to the poor. He doesn't have to do that. There's no Old Testament law that would require him to give away 50%. Maybe 20% would have been the requirement of someone like him, not 50%. And then he said, for anyone that I've cheated, I'm going to make restitution, and I'm going to give back four times what I took. Well, what's the Old Testament law on that? The Old Testament law is that you give back what you took plus 20% of what you took. So 120% restitution, and and Lazarus blows it out of the water by saying, I'm going to give 400% restitution back. Why? Because radical grace always results in radical generosity and radical change. And Jesus' repeated emphasis in the Gospel of Luke is that generosity is not the means of redemption, but it's the evidence of redemption. We don't give our way into the kingdom of God, but once we've been brought into the kingdom of God by the look and the invitation, we're, we're generous people. Generosity and giving are pillars of discipleship. discipleship. In fact, I would say it this way, no one truly follows Christ who has not learned how to give. No one truly follows Christ who has not learned how to give. Not just their money, but their time, their words, acts of kindness. Once you've experienced the grace of God, once you've seen the look, once you've heard the invite, there's always going to be a change. And by the way, if you get the order wrong, if you try to change yourself before you get the look and before you hear the invite, you'll be miserable You'll be the most miserable Christian in the room. You'll be the most exhausted. You won't like, you won't like your own life. And people, by the way, won't like being around you either because you'll, you'll, you'll be trying to get something that hasn't, you haven't actually received. You're trying to change yourself when you haven't seen the look and you haven't heard the invite. And then Jesus wraps this whole thing up by saying, this is why I came, to seek and save the lost. His mission statement, to seek and save the lost. Of course, we know the way that Jesus did it is he went to the cross It's interesting because in this story, Zacchaeus climbs up a tree so that he can see Jesus. But just a little bit later, Jesus is now to a tree so everyone can see him, so he can be seen, so he can be lifted up and draw men unto himself. And when we see Jesus giving his life for us on the cross and we see the look that he fully knows us, but he fully loves us, he invites himself in to dwell with us, despite of who we are, what we've done, where we've been, he wants to be with us, then we respond to the grace of God, and it results in great change, great change. Let's pray together this morning.